they have thrown the kitchen sink at the Trump Organization and Alan Weisselberg. This is very bad news for the Trump Organization because the DA has taken an aggressive tack, indicting the entire Trump Organization and references to the payroll company and others. So if you were the company hoping to pin this on the employer, get out of it as far as the DA is concerned, game over there. They're going after the whole company. That ensures Donald Trump and others will be drawn out to fight this. Uh, highlight number two, there are 15 counts here. This is not one or two counts we were covering initially. Uh, the verbal, oral uh, testimony and statements coming out of the lawyers in court today, that gave us previews where we had the reference to grand larceny. Now we have 15 counts, including larceny, tax fraud, false statements, filing false instruments, falsifying business records. They are taking uh, what the DA argues was a conspiracy uh, to intentionally and habitually defraud the government, steal money, uh, and pay people, quote, off the books. That's the language of the indictment. Uh, and they're alleging that went on for 15 years, that this was an off-the-book scheme with internal spreadsheets, with Mr. Weisselberg lying about where he lived to avoid tax authorities in New York, that there were ingredients and pieces of evidence that showed it was not just a corporate car here or there, as the Trump lawyers were claiming, but a multi-year, elaborate, and agreed-upon conspiracy. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Donald Trump may be an endangered species, but there's still nothing more dangerous than a wounded animal, and even more dangerous than a wounded animal is a wounded Donald Trump. And if it's last weekend's MAGA rally is the harbinger of what's to come, Trump today poses an even deeper threat to this nation than he did on January 6th. Let's rewind a week as I take you to rural Ohio. Let's hear it for the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. And come 2024, we're going to get him elected for the third time. Unfortunately, my current house arrest prevented me from actually attending Trump's first campaign-style rally since President Biden took office, held at the Lorain County Fairgrounds outside of Cleveland, Ohio. That said, I attended enough of these in the run-up to 2016 to know what it's like to be inside the belly of the beast. Imagine a NASCAR tailgate crossed with WrestleMania and equal parts, traveling carnival, except that there's only one focus, and that's Donald J. Trump, who the crowd worships with evangelical fervor. It was a false election. So... And they took over, and that's well, what happened. The military that, took that over. That could possibly happen here, possibly. Would if you, the military is in control. That's what they're working towards. Would you think that that's what could happen? That's it what could. I think. Would you happen. like to see it happen? Absolutely. I would like to see it happen. Really? Yes. You know why? Because the election was stolen from us. The military is doing their own investigation, and at the right time, they're going to be restoring the republic with Trump as president. I would tell you that if you've seen one MAGA rally, you've seen them all. And by and large, that's actually true. The chance of four more years and lock him up, this time aimed at infectious disease expert Anthony Fauci instead of former campaign rival Hillary Clinton. There was the recitation of the sinister poem, The Snake, which for close Trump watchers featured prominently during the 2016 election campaign and has been read out on several occasions since Trump took office. So here it is, The Snake. It's called The Snake. On her way to work one morning, down the path along the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor, half-frozen snake. His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with the dew. 
Poor thing, she cried, I'll take you in and I'll take care of you. The border. However, the true meaning of the poem appears to have been lost on the former president. To Trump, the snake serves as a cautionary tale of the potential dangers posed by illegal immigrants. The lyrics describe the story of a woman who takes a snake into her home after discovering it freezing to death outside of her home. Things take a turn for the worse. However, when after nursing the snake back to health, the serpent bites her, infecting the woman with a deadly poison in the process. Instead of saying thank you, that snake gave her a vicious Bite. The snake actually started life as a song recorded by soul singer Al Wilson in 1968. On her way to work one morning down the path alongside the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor half-frozen snake. More significantly still, it was actually penned by a noted civil rights activist, Oscar Brown, who wrote it as a celebration of black culture and a repudiation of racism. In fact, Trump has been warned by two of Brown's surviving children to stop using the song to demonize immigrants. Brown's family lashed out at the president in a previous statement accusing him of perversely using the song, adding that the writer never had anything against immigrants. Oh, shut up! Silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. But let's face it, when Trump recites the snake, especially now, he is talking about himself. Anyone who attends a Trump rally in 2021 knows damn well what Donald Trump is all about. You know, you have the crime of the century, which I consider to be the election of 2020. They use COVID in order to cheat. They use COVID in order to rig the election and in order to steal the election. They use COVID. That's as simple as it gets. And that's what's so fucking frightening about this latest go around. At least in 2016, there was the pretense of hope. During past rallies, Trump supporters applauded Trump as he trashed immigrants, demonized the media, and echoed his calls to lock up his opponents. But they also felt hopeful that this billionaire genius was giving them a voice. There was a sense that this charismatic outsider would empower them to change Washington, and a joyfulness that came with being part of a movement. Now, they just feel cheated, aggrieved, and angry. There is no outlet anymore other than violence. Their champion was no longer in office, which means he has been stripped of any real power. In their minds, and fed up by the lies of Donald Trump, the election was stolen from them, and the only way they could have a voice or a stake in the system is through violence. In the 1960s, there was a chant, the whole world is watching. They were watching in January as well, but this time in horror as democracy unraveled before their eyes. What's left of the Trump faithful have been scrubbed of their hope and sense of community and are increasingly violent and agitated. I speak a lot about the cult of Trump, but watching the rally last weekend was the ultimate manifestation. 
Trumpism has merged with a myriad of conspiracy theories, racist ideology, and fucking QAnon insanity to become something like we've never seen. Trump's hand-picked guest this summer is, yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now he's no dummy, and he knows that the salvation lies in at the very extreme end of the spectrum with the likes of Green. The Democrats stole the election, right? But here's what we're up against. Nancy Pelosi wants to put their cheating ways into law by federalizing our elections. We aren't going to allow that to happen. Now Biden has weaponized the DOJ. Unbelievable. So he can go after Trump supporters while at the same time ignoring Antifa BLM domestic terrorists. Does that make any sense? Do you guys think any of those riots we saw all year long were peaceful protests? No. No, they were domestic terrorists burning our cities, attacking our police officers, looting our stores, private businesses, killing people, and rampaging, terrorizing our country. But it's Trump supporters they're after. Don't forget, they hate you because you love President Trump. Trump's message is clear this time around. It's about fear, and most importantly for Trump, revenge. He called the rally, which ran just over an hour and a half, the first of the 2022 cycle, hoping to use his influence over the party to lead Republicans towards winning control over Congress next year. Our movement is far from over, he told the crowd. In fact, our fight has only just begun. Not unlike an actor who comes to your town, say, late in their career to do dinner theater or a boxer whose best days are behind him, who does an exhibition wrestling match for the money. The rally was in support of Max Miller, a former Trump aide and Republican congressional candidate, hoping to unseat the incumbent, Representative Anthony Gonzalez, Republican of Ohio. Gonzalez was one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump following the Capitol riot. Trump accused Gonzalez of being a Washington, D.C. grandstander, claiming that he had once tried to curry favor with the Trump White House by requesting a ride with Trump on Air Force One. He's a sellout. He's a fake Republican and a disgrace to your state, Donald said. He's the candidate of Liz Cheney. Although the rally was ostensibly meant to bolster Miller, Trump stuck to his evil ways and used the event to air his own grievances and sing his own praises, repeatedly peddling the bogus claim that he was the true winner of the 2020 election. That said, I would be surprised if a single person at the event gave a shit about either of these two men. This is about Trump and getting back at those who he believed stole what was rightfully his. And his return to the rally circuit serves the purpose of scaring off potential competition in the race for 2024. Now Trump needs money badly, and the only way he can keep it coming is to be seen as a viable candidate for office in the eyes of his supporters. Do I think he'll run? Fuck no. His fragile ego cannot withstand the possibility that he will lose again. This is all window dressing, folks. It's a soapbox for Trump to continue to scam his base for small dollar donations. 
It also gives him a platform to denounce the criminal charges unfolding against the Trump Organization, Weisselberg, and himself. The fact that he selfishly continues to hold the country hostage makes not one iota of a difference. This is a political opportunity for Donald Trump. He always sees things this way, and he has believed for months that if he continues to maintain that he's a future candidate, that any kind of, um, uh, of prosecution of him um, looks politically motivated and will continue to help him raise more hundreds of millions of dollars as he has done since the day he lost the election. Uh, and I, I, I think that, you know, he has taught his base that everyone who is against him, uh, anyone who, who, who brings any facts that are unfavorable, uh, whether that's the law or the media or anyone, um, is a part of the deep state. And that now includes, as of this week, Bill Barr, the former attorney general, and Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican leader in the Senate. The fear message emanating from his meandering rally speech was very hard to miss. It centers, as usual, on his mixture of white victimhood and indemnity politics. But the illegal immigrants of the snake have been replaced by proponents of critical race theory and ideas of wokeness. It was these issues, more than any, which drew the biggest applaud lines from the evening. Fanning the flames of the GOP-orchestrated panic, Trump tore into military leadership, accusing them of becoming weak and ineffective and woke. That all of this has been manufactured by Fox News and Tucker Carlson, along with a cadre of cynical GOP operatives, was lost on the crowd. Earlier this year, the Biden administration issued new rules pushing twisted critical race theory into classrooms across the nation. And also into our military, our generals and our admirals are now focused more on this nonsense than they are on our enemies. You see these generals lately on television? They, they are woke. They're woke. We need a Republican Congress to ban critical race theory. You know, I had it banned through executive order. And it was fine. And then when we didn't get in, they immediately reinstituted it. But where's it all gone? But they have to get it out of our schools and they have to ban it in our workplaces and ban it in our states and ban it in federal agencies and ban it in our military. Trump knows a winner when he hears it, so expect him to lean into this messaging as a means of rallying his fractious base. For Trump, finding an enemy and lambasting that group is the key. Without an enemy, there is nothing to rally around. In his famous 2018 essay about this topic, Atlantic columnist Adam Serwer wrote, Taking joy in the suffering is more human than most would like to admit. Somewhere on the wide spectrum between adolescent teasing and the smiling white men in the lynching photographs are the Trump supporters, whose community is built by rejoicing in the anguish of those they see as unlike them, who have found in their shared cruelty an answer to the loneliness and atomization of modern life. Trump's only true skill is the con. His only fundamental belief is that the United States is the birthright of straight, white, Christian men, and his only real, authentic pleasure is in cruelty. It is that cruelty and the delight it brings them that binds his most ardent supporters to him in shared scorn for those they hate and fear. Immigrants, black voters, feminists, and treasonous white men who empathize with any of those who would steal their birthright. 
The president's ability to execute that cruelty through word and deed makes them euphoric. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel proud. It makes them feel fucking happy. It makes them feel united. As long as he makes them feel that way, they will let him get away with anything, no matter what it costs them. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mayor Culpa, David Plouffe, was the mastermind of President Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. He is in every way the very antithesis of the Trump-era antagonism towards discipline and expertise in modern politics. If Obama represented the technocrat as president, cool, considered, and control in every decision, Pluff was the man behind the keyboard, collating the data, finding the trends, and managing the campaign. He assiduously avoided self-promotion and the political limelight in the service of Obama's vision in his re-election. During a national news event on his final day in the White House, Plouf was singled out by the president saying, what people don't always realize because he doesn't like to show it, is the reason he does this stuff is because he cares deeply about the people. And he cares about justice. And he cares about making sure that everybody gets a shot in life. And those values have motivated him to do incredible things. And were it not for him, we would not have been as effective a White House as I probably would be here today. In 2015, after intense lobbying by Hillary Clinton, Plouffe lent his considerable skills to her campaign, where he remained bullish on a Clinton victory up until the eve of the election, even as the race began to narrow, famously calling those Democrats concerned about a Trumpy victory bedwetters. He placed her chances at 100%, only to find himself dead wrong. The loss instilled in him a panic that Democrats were campaigning wrong. The fact that Plouffe could have missed what was undeniable trend of modern politics, that elections were not being won by landslides, but at the margins, sometimes by as little as 10,000 votes by what he called late deciders, caused him to reappraise how he looked at the electoral map. In response, Plouffe wrote, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, which came out prior to the 2020 election and focused on how the small things individuals could do, became significant in the aggregate. It was, in essence, a handbook for individual grassroots activism and how individuals could do their part to defeat the fucking MAGA menace. He joins Mayor Culpa at the very moment Trump is trying to reignite his political life and rather than laugh at the former president, remains as concerned as I am about his capacity to inflict damage on this nation. So let's listen now to that conversation. So David, your book entitled A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, which came out prior to the 2020 election, focuses on small things individuals can do that could be significant in the aggregate. It is, in essence, a handbook for individual grassroots activism and how individuals can do their part to defeat the MAGA menace. Now, I'm curious, 
how you believe that the book holds up in a post-January 6th political universe where, beyond the usual campaign issues, candidates must now contend with the possibility that even if they win the election, there will be concerted effort to deny them their victory by contesting the vote as fraudulent. Explain. Yeah, well, Michael... That's that's the big threat we're all living under, and I think it's a severe threat. Uh, our democracy may be uh, literally um, – right now, it's on a, a knife's edge. Uh, but I'd say you know the book and the ideas in it uh, – so mostly it's post-2020, but it's also post-pandemic, what holds up. But the, the main point of the book, more important than any specific uh, tactic or idea, was you've got more agency than you think, right? The most powerful communication in politics is another human being talking to another human being that they trust – that they know you should register to vote, you should volunteer, here's where I think you should vote for Biden in that case, use your social media uh, influence, uh, create your own content. All those things are incredibly important. Right now in politics, there's an imbalance because the right, and when I say the right, I don't mean all Republicans, but you know, you've got Sinclair at the local level, you've got Prager University, you've got Newsmax, OAN, Fox, you have powerful megaphones. You know, Democrats don't have a similar thing. So you've got to aggregate it up with people. But listen, if you're a candidate, all you can worry about is trying to win your election uh, in 2022. Um, but the notion that somehow this Republican Party, if they win back the House, wouldn't try um, in 2024 to hand a close election the Democrat actually won to a Republican. I don't know what planet you're living on. Like they would do that in a minute. And that's why the courts, something you know well, um, legislation, you know, grassroots activists, and it's going to take everything we have, not just to win elections for Democrats, but to save this democracy. Yes, but now couple in with that these new voter suppression laws, the gerrymandering. How does right. that fit into your book? Well, the suppression efforts uh, in my political career really began after Obama won in 08. So between 08 and 12, Republicans, where they had power, tried to make it harder to vote early, harder to register. They got rid of early vote sites. And so uh, it's been a continual effort. It's now intensified, obviously, after the big lie. So, yes, what you've got is now hopefully in Washington, Democrats will pass voting rights legislation, will supersede some of this. There's a lot of lawsuits being filed at the state level, but it's going to be on every individual. If you live in a state where the rules have changed, you've got to talk to everybody, you know, and say, now you have to bring an I.D., or now early vote is not three weeks anymore. Uh, you know, it's five days. There's different requirements for absentee ballots. So hopefully a lot of that will get overturned, both by the courts and by what Democrats in Washington do. But in states where it doesn't or if it doesn't, everybody's got to take this on. You just can't wave, you know, the white flag, shrug your shoulders and say we're fucked. Like you got to fight. But this is this is dastardly, man. I mean, listen, you only have to be a casual student of history to understand great empires, uh, great countries. They don't last forever. None of them ever have. Ours won't either. OK, it's being tested right now. Uh, and 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 these toxic seeds that Trump planted are starting to sprout everywhere around the country. So on the one hand, they're trying to make it harder to vote and to register. But on the other hand, you probably saw in Georgia, they, they uh, did this in Arkansas. They're trying to do it in Arizona. They want to change who decides who wins in elections. It's not election officials anymore. It's Republican state legislatures. And that's the, that's not a democracy. OK, that's an autocracy. And that's where I think we're headed in a lot of places. And that's the ultimate aim here, I think, is a lot of Republicans follow the Trump playbook uh, and they want to ma maintain power and no matter how um, they do that. I'll never forget. This was right before the election. I think it was The New York Times did a story about Trump voters in Pennsylvania or somewhere. 
And and it was this guy who said, you know, I'd be comfortable if the Trumps ruled forever. Trump first, then Don Jr., then Eric, then Ivanka. And that seems so antithetical to, you know, an American democracy. There's a lot of people out there who believe that. And, and Trump, I think, really unleashed this. And now all these lemmings in Washington who know better for the most part are following down this path uh, to basically destroy democracy. So uh, and I don't think that's hyperbole. I think there's way too much hyperbole in politics in America. But this is not one. Our democracy literally is on death's door uh, if we don't push back on these efforts. And then I sit there sometimes and I watch uh, I'll flip into Fox television just because I need a laugh. Right. And I want to see what the fucking loonies are up to. And so I'll turn on Fox News and they had this guy on and he was all decked out in a red, white and blue shirt with his cowboy hat and his shit kicking boots and so on with a straw in his mouth. And I'm not bullshitting you with a straw in the mouth and so on. And they asked him, is Donald Trump right now? President of the United States. And this was only what, about a week or two ago. And he goes, Donald Trump is not only the president right now, but he's going to also be put back into the White House in August. Now, I scratched my head and I wondered, what fucking planet is this idiot coming from? And why didn't the guy asking the question say to them, well, you do understand that right now, if you look it up in the history books, it will show Joe Biden as being the 46th president of the United States of America. And more importantly, we something that we all know, I lived in Washington for four years. I worked for Congressman Joe Moakley in 1987. Washington is shut down in the month of August. Even if somehow that there was some miracle of God that Donald Trump was supposed to be put back into power in August... There's not even a mechanism within which to do that because there's nobody there. So what does he just do? Show up? He, what did he make a copy of the front door key to the White House? He opens himself up. He turns around and he tells Keith, his former security guard, or Matt Calamari, right? His, his, um, you know, his henchman over there, his chief operating officer. Do me a favor. Go pack the Biden shit up and put it on the doorstep. How does something like that even work? Yeah, man, it's it's insanity. But listen, it's probably <laughs> what? 20 percent of the country. It's probably 40 percent, maybe 50 percent of the Republican Party. Voters now believe the following. Trump won. Some of them believe he's still president. He's going to get reinstalled. You know, they believe that coronavirus is still a hoax. They don't believe in vaccinations. Um, we're probably going to have a killing field in the South, unfortunately, because of this Delta variant with people not getting vaccinated. They certainly don't believe in climate change. I mean, this is a crisis for the country. And and what is what is unforgivable, I mean, you know, Trump as well as anybody ever has known him. I mean, it's not surprising what he's doing, but that so few Republicans have decided to say, OK, even if they say, I thought he did a good job as president. OK, but we're moving on. And my guess is that will happen at some point. The notion, in my view, and I love your view on this, um, I don't think he's going to run because I don't think he wants to be humiliated and losing a Republican primary. Because I think there will be a lot of voters who might even say, I think he's the greatest thing ever. Uh, but I think it's time for a change. I don't I don't think he's the guy to win back the White House. So that's going to be painful for him. Uh, and I think he's going to start attacking the Ron DeSantis of the world and others, even the people who stood by him, because he can't stand to see them do betters in polls and, and straw polls. But th- there there is a a lack of reality out there that's fed by, you know, you have to watch Fox, not just for entertainment. You have to know what's happening on the other side. I mean, they are mainlining lies and toxicity. I mean, if you look at like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram show now, they're like the white power hour. OK, it's all that, you know, uh, you know no, it's <laughs> yeah. true. 
Okay, and and that stokes very dangerous things out there. And so um, again, I think that um, we all are super um, happy that so many people have been vaccinated. Not enough, but enough. Life's coming back to normal. Hopefully, kids will be back in school in the fall. Everywhere, the economy is is growing. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of good things out there. But our democracy literally could be gone in a few years. Um, we have, uh, you know, our one our, one of our two major political parties right now, largely fueled by lies and grievance and, 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 and increasingly racism. These are very, very dark times. Hi, folks, Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, check out last Thursday's episode with Cornell's Robert H. Frank, who talks about the off-downplayed role of luck in success and how we can maximize its effects. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, like the January 12th episode with Matthew McConaughey. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guest. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N is in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have a question for you, though. I'm just curious because you are, are under home confinement, but you still live in one of the Trump properties. So what's that like? Like living, <sighs> I mean, seeing uh, like the name. And so, my yellow, wife, like, so my wife yeah. would- <laughs> <laughs> so my wife and I were coming home. Uh, this was about a month ago. Uh, we were at a doctor's appointment and um, we're walking across the street. And obviously I knew Ivanka was in the building because the night before the Secret Service show up. And meanwhile, she's supposed to lose that Secret Service at the end of this month. Uh, let's see if that happens. But we knew that she was coming out of the building. And as we're walking across the street, we're just about ready to get onto the curb on the, our building side. And we're the first building uh, on that side. She's walking through the doors. And I know she saw us. And we were trying to run to get there just so that we could see each other face to face. They put her immediately in the car. She picks up <laughs> a newspaper and she puts it over her, like, over her face, pretending that she's reading. Because that's, that's an old Trump trick. You know, carry 50 newspapers and pretend that you're literate. None of them are. None of them read the fucking newspaper except to see that their name is into it. But, you know, you did ask a question before about Trump and whether or not he's going to run in 2024. And the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Right now, as we all know, Donald Trump is plagued with a whole myriad of litigation, including criminal litigation that could come down any second now. Today, we're all told that uh, Trump Organization Council and others went down to meet with the DA again in order to try to convince them, yeah, not to bring indictments 
uh, oh, wow, uh, we're really sorry that this is causing you pressure and tension and so on. Maybe the DA will reconsider after, of course, going before the Supreme Court to get copies of all his tax returns and having more than a dozen meetings with people like myself, with the millions and millions of pages of documents that they've combed through regarding illegalities by Trump, Don Jr., Eric Ivanka, Jared, et cetera, et cetera, the Trump Organization, Weisselberg, Calamari, right? You think that Donald's now going to run in 2024? He's got his, he's got more problems now than anybody else I could think of, maybe in history. And you're right when you were talking about Ron DeSantis. It fucking infuriates Trump that somebody else is getting a headline that he thinks belongs to him, which is why now you're seeing Jared and Ivanka pulled away from Donald. And it's not because they're trying to clear up their name for social standing. They'll never have that again. That's fucking gone. Right. I mean, you know, you're the daughter of a racist, sexist, misogynistic pig. You're not getting that back. All right. The reason why there's intra-family fighting going on is because Jared just signed a book deal and he's going to get a couple million bucks, you know, from, you know, from the uh, publisher regarding this book. And that pisses Trump off because all he's thinking in his mind is, wait, 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 wait. I'm now coming out of pocket each and every day regarding litigation expenses, regarding cases like mine against the Trump org where I want my legal fees back and others and now he's saying, wait, wait, and now Jared right. gets to write about it and put more millions in his pocket. That's all that's on this lunatic's mind. So, no, he's not running. No, he's not going to be endorsing DeSantis. DeSantis is going to learn, like what I told to Rudy Giuliani, welcome to the hashtag under the bus club. <laughs> he's going to throw him under the bus, right. too. Unless you're there patting him on his fat ass 24-7, rest assured, you're not you're not in it together and he's not in it on your behalf because Donald Trump is completely disloyal. If it's not about him, it's not right. about anybody. You forgot his fat diapered ass, but nonetheless. So let me so one question for you and then you'll want to turn it back to me. But I I, I, I said this back in 2016 and, and this is when I thought Trump wouldn't win, but he was the nominee. I said, I think Donald Trump will regret running for president. I actually still maintain that. Now, of course, you know, this is a rarefied company, only Forty-five other people have been president in the history of the country. I still think that he is going to regret running for president because I think the post-presidency for him, which is generally, whether you're a two-term president, one-term president, pretty awesome to be a uh, ex-president of the United States of America. A lot of opportunity. Uh, he's going to go through the gates of hell here. And so what's your view? Like, do you think – I'm not sure he's a guy who can be honest with himself if he has self-reflection. But I've always thought at some point he's going to say, I wish I never ran for that fucking office in the first place. There's no doubt that others that are around him who do have the ability for self-reflection are saying that. The kids came to me early on and said, we don't want dad to run. You got to talk him out of it. At that time, it was way, way past the line. He was already knee deep into it. I do believe when he's by himself, Sitting in his room, because, you know, there's no relationship. It's, he sleeps by himself. He uh, travels by himself. I don't, Melania's off doing her own thing. I do believe that there are times when he sits there and says to himself, what the fuck did I get myself into? I had a really great life. I was traveling. I was admired right. by so many people, which he was. You know, that his whole company is going to hell in a handbasket. He's losing everything. He may 
and probably will lose his freedom. So, yes, I do believe at times that there will be the proper self-reflection and um, he will regret the day that he decided to enter the race, the day that he decided to put up um, Ted Cruz's father with Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, the day that he had the affair with Stormy Daniels or Karen McDougal, the day that he decided that he was going to attack Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and everybody else uh, on that Republican line. But, you know, Yes, David, we do have to jump back to questions because this is really mm-hmm. about you today. You're our special guest. Now, one of your central arguments on what decides elections, at least in 2016 and 2020, is the central importance of, and I quote, late deciders. Those voters who sit on the fence up to the election day are the ones who often decide the election, which is often by the narrowest of margins. In 2016, They broke for Trump and in 2020 for Biden. Now, I'm curious, though, in this uber polarized era where the GOP has coalesced around Trump and his lies and 75 percent of the party believes that the election was stolen. Are there any late deciders left or do we simply have two sides, both hardened in their positions and thus turning out base becomes central to victory? How does this change the conversation around elections? Well, it's so important. There is a a very dangerous, I think, false choice that's often presented, certainly in my party, which is you've got to think about it's either base voters or middle persuadable voters. And in any battleground state, any close congressional district, there's not enough of either. You need both. right? You've got to drive up turnout through registration and turnout, and you've got to win enough of the middle in battleground states. In competitive congressional districts, that candidate who wins the middle almost always wins the election. Number one, there is this, you know, a lot of political scientists that I, you know, admire say there's no such thing as a swing voter anymore. But let's just look at the last 14 years. Okay. You and I grew up at a time where it's like there weren't many landslide elections. 1974, right after all Watergate, the landslide election. Maybe not 94, Bill Clinton's first off year election, landslide. So, wow, I can't believe that. We didn't see many of these. Since 06, 06, landslide Democrat. 08, landslide Democrat. 10, landslide Republican. 12, pretty close to the Obama-Romney year. 14, landslide Republican. 16, pretty close, Trump-Clinton. 18, landslide Democrat. 20, pretty close. So we've had a historic number of landslide elections, and that's not just because one side's voting and one side's not. You do have people in the middle moving around, largely because they're dissatisfied with their economic situation. So if you want to win a close election in a in a tough district or state in 22 or 24, you've got to figure out a way to do both. And late deciders are not just people who are definitely going to vote who are persuadable. There's also late deciders like, am I going to vote? And that's the big question in 2022 post-Trump himself being on the ballot. You know, will Democrats get a third consecutive uh, election cycle with really good turnout? They had historic turnout in 18 wasn't as great as we would have liked in 20, but it was good enough. Trump generated great turnout for himself in 20, like off the charts. Uh, you know, can that happen again or, or will there be some people because he's telling them the elections are rigged who say, fuck it, I'm not going to vote. We saw that happen in Georgia. And what does the middle do? You know, do Democrats continue their march to domination in the suburbs? Uh, can the Republicans build on some of Trump gains with with Hispanic voters in particular, non-college men? We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. But but. You have to do both. It's a it's a simple mathematical exercise to get to 50.1 percent of the vote in any tough state or district. There's not enough of base or persuadable. You have to put them together. 
And you need a candidate who can both do both. You know, I was privileged to work for Barack Obama. He was a candidate who could win, you know, uh, white working class voters in, in Racine, Wisconsin, and also drive huge turnout in Milwaukee, uh, in Madison. And I think Joe Biden did what he had to do in that regard. But but that's what you need. You need somebody. And, and that's ultimately, listen, Trump, the amazing thing about this, Michael, is, you know, all these Republicans basically want to stake their party's future on following the Trump playbook. This is a guy who ran for president twice, okay, who never got above 47 percent of the vote. First time he won in part because so many people voted third party. And to your point, in 16, you had the people who said, I don't like Clinton or Trump. In an election, a lot of those people either don't vote or it splits 50-50. You know, Trump won those pretty decisively because I think people said, I don't like either one of them. I think two things. But Trump is changed and Clinton's not. And I think Trump, this is all like an act. He'll clean himself up and, you know, he's a business guy. He'll take the job seriously. He didn't do that. And that's what hurt him, I think, uh, heading into 20. So you have to do both. You've got to maximize turnout and you've got to win the middle. And some in my party believe you have to make a choice. Uh, and I think that's a recipe for uh, defeat. You know, for a guy who's really politically very stupid and obviously extremely inexperienced, the one thing he did catch on early, early on more so than any of the other Republicans in that field. And I think there were, what, 17 in total? Was he wanted to capture what he referred to as the silent majority. And he spoke to these individuals and said, look, I'm not a politician. I'm just like you. And this is what's wrong with our system. And we all say that, whether you are a hardened Republican, a hardened Democrat, whether you're a hardened, um, you know, sort of, uh, in, you know, in the middle, independent, it doesn't make a difference. What he turned around and he said is, you can't be happy with Hillary Clinton. And again, targeting this silent majority, you need to vote for me. Now, I'm not perfect. And he acknowledged that, you know, from day number one. But what I'm not, I'm not a politician. Right. And I'm not going to do to you what the politicians have been doing to this country on and on and on. And he suckered them into believing exactly what she said, that he'd clean his shit up, that he would rise to the level of the office of the president of the United States of America instead of denigrating the office and making it like the office at 721 Fifth Avenue, right, the Trump Organization. Instead, that's what he did. He debased the office not just in front of our own country, but in front of all oh, of yeah. our allies as he cozied up to our adversaries. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something, since, of course, you're so close with the Obamas. When we would engage in these conversations and he would ask me, how do you think I did, you know, in the, you know, in my speech? How did Because I, I never went to any of the rallies. Interestingly enough, I never went. I would say, yeah, you did. You did really well. But, you know, that's the one thing about Obama that you had to give him credit for. The guy was an incredible, incredible orator. And he and I would say it simply because it bothered him. He would go off on me. Shut the fuck up. He goes, he is not. And I'm like, look, look Mr. Trump, you may not like him and so on. But the guy is two things. The guy is wickedly bright. Right. I mean, he is wickedly bright. And on top of that, he's just an incredible orator. Right. So even if you don't like what he's saying, the way he says it, it just comes out so, so eloquent and so good. That's how he captured, you know, the 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 minds and the and the attention in the hearts of so many Americans to which it used to drive him crazy. He would tell me 
get out of my office. <laughs> I bet. And he would throw me out. Yeah. And, you know, look, I've been a Democrat my entire life. And I told him, he asked me if I voted for Obama. And I said yes. And then we were working on helping Mitt Romney. I still voted for Obama, right? Simply because, you know, I was voting with my party. And I still believe, despite I think Mitt is an awfully nice guy. I like his yeah. wife and, and his kids were all super lovely people. It's just um, I was happy with the job that Barack Obama was doing. Now, that doesn't mean that every single policy that Obama was putting forth, I agree with. I, I don't. But then again, you know, ask my wife if she agrees with me, you know, 12 out of 12 times. The answer is no. I'm happy if she agrees with me five out of yeah, 12 right. times. If then we're doing honest. just great. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, here's one thing. You know, so not I'm not talking about Mitt Romney specifically, but someone like Romney of those positions of, of who, who treats government and politics a little bit more seriously. Is somebody like that going to be able to win the Republican nomination anytime soon? I don't think so. And, and that makes me super sad because the, the thing the country needs more than anything else is a healthy Republican Party again for us to function. But Trump had unique appeal. And, and remember, you, you know, those debates back in 15 and 16, you know, he what the press or his opponents say it's, Trump made a mistake. He made a gaffe. He wasn't prepared. And voters are like, I like that. You know, he's not a politician. Uh, and and uh, and he inspired great loyalty. I mean, I drove across the country in uh, the summer of 2016 from East Coast to West and, and back again. And when I drove in August of six of, of 20. So this is I'm sorry, just last year. OK, I've never seen anything like it. OK, you'd get off. The house is filled with those lawn ornaments yeah. and then no, the you, signs. You drive yeah, across, Incredible. you know, through uh, Iowa and, and Nebraska and, you know, parts of Wyoming. And, yeah, you you your signs everywhere in all the fields. You get off, they get gas. And there's like, like every other car has a Trump bumper sticker. People wearing Trump hats like it was serious, man. And I think that's the thing. Uh, that the polls didn't capture uh, that I was very concerned about is I is that he was going to drive historic turnout on his behalf. Like his people, you know how were I knew coming. that so many of them. Yep, David, you know how yeah. I knew that so many of them were really were really really stupid people that were voting for him. We saw I was with my son and we were driving uh, and we saw this brand new. Um, F-150 um, pickup truck, brand new, and it's in gray charcoal anthracite. I'll, I'll never forget it. The entire car was bumper stickered with Trump <laughs> Pence 20, 2016, right? And I'm saying to myself, you do understand, stupid, that those stickers don't just come off. These, this isn't like color forms that they peel off. I mean, you're now going to destroy a brand new truck. With putting on these stupid bumper stickers. That's how you know that he was playing to, I hate to say it, to people who really are um, just not really there altogether intellectually. Uh, this guy clearly didn't think about what's going to happen, one, when tr if Trump loses, and right. two, how am, I getting these bump how am I getting these stickers off my paint? He's like a cult leader. I mean, people are willing to do stuff like that because, you know, he was their cult leader, and they believe in him. They almost think like he was sent, you know, from heaven, you know, to come here and, and save the country. I am curious, when you think about the businesses, I, it, like, who would do business with him or his family right now? Well, actually, nobody. Right. Yeah, that's the, that's a big problem for them. Nobody and anybody that does is taking a tremendous risk that they become. And, you know, he may want to yell, cancel culture, cancel culture. I don't understand how anybody is having, for example, a wedding at Mar-a-Lago. 
Now, I know people that are actually expecting to have it there. If I was invited to that wedding, I'd tell you, go fuck yourself. I'm not walking, I'm not walking to Mar-a-Lago. Fuck him. Fuck his property. And, you know, I, I'm happy with America being, find another place. Otherwise, find new guests. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go. But then let me just keep moving on, David, yeah. because I'm never going to get to some of these great yeah. questions I have for you. Now, some argue that the biggest threat to democracy is the disinformation that has risen in the era of Trump. And unlike COVID, there is no vaccine. And every day, there seems to be more and more and more of it polluting the wires. Is there a remedy out there for this situation, either through regulation or through some changes in technology? Or is it simply an issue that must be governed and managed around enough counter-messaging on social media so that the real message drowns out the lies and the misinformation? Michael, I mean, this is... um... I get really bummed out when I think about this. I mean, I don't think, A, there's no one answer. Most complex problems don't have one answer. It's going to take everything. It may take regulation. Uh, It takes more truth-telling from leaders, uh, even when it's hard. Um, And you saw, I mean, you know, Donald Trump said, I won the election, an election he clearly lost. And what was amazing is the Republicans at the state level, who had some responsibility for the elections, you know, for the most part, availed themselves well, but pretty much everybody else is quiet, hiding. OK, like so if you're not going to speak up then when our democracy literally uh, is under threat, I don't have a lot of confidence that it's going to going to change. You do have, you know, Fox and Sinclair uh, and Newsmax, all of these things. They're not taking a point of view. They're just polluting the body politic with disinformation, powerful content and weaponry that gets shared. So it's going to take legislation. It's going to take more leadership. It's certainly going to take uh, every American citizen understanding this is a battle. And I get it. You know, if you see your like, you know, Aunt Ivanka or Uncle Jared post some lie, like, you know, it's going to be painful if you're like, that's just not true. Here's the fact. But I always encourage people, you got to do it. If you don't do it, who's going to do it? And if 200 people are in that you know, conversation on social media and some of them see that you responded, you know, they might have more confidence to respond to their own crazy chain. So uh, we all have a responsibility here not to just throw up our hands and fight back. But, you know, the weaponry of misinformation is getting more and more powerful. We have foreign actors deeply involved in this. Um, there is no if anything, you know, how do you get on Fox News these days if you're a congressperson? You say crazy shit, untrue stuff. You get booked. If you say, well, on the one hand or nuance, like, you know, you don't have currency in today's politics. That that kid from North Carolina, Madison Cawthorn, when he won down in North Carolina, you know, didn't he say, I'm not hiring anybody who does policy. I'm just hiring communications people because that's what my job is. And that's what a lot of people think these days. Uh, it's a circus. It's not real. And and again, I think our democracy, because of disinformation, uh, because of the voter suppression, because they're trying to change who, who decides elections. Because now Trump has mainstreamed the fact that you can lose and say you didn't and almost half the country will believe you. Uh, These are going to be really, really challenging times. Uh, And we do need more Republican leaders to say uh, the truth and not be afraid. That's the thing. I mean, Trump has an amazing ability uh, and his media ecosystem that supports him to just bring these politicians to heal. I mean, at the end of your life, do you really want to look back and say, Yeah, the most important period of my life, I spent cowering because I was afraid that Donald Trump would attack me. I mean, really? 
I, I just don't understand. Yeah, well, it. Look, I look, I, I've been there. I've been on the other side of his Twitter attacks. I've been on the side where I was walking on the street and guy threw a Snapple bottle at me, you know, hit the wall as opposed to hitting me in the head. This is what this man elicits. This is the the anger. This is the hatred that he just elicits. And as it relates to this misinformation and this disinformation campaign, I do believe that much of the Trump appeal is dissipating. You saw that in Ohio as people were walking out right. in droves, you know, because they're fucking bored of the same shit from Trump, which is, you know, I won the election. I won the. First of all, you weren't there to talk about yourself. You were there to endorse somebody else, I believe, for 2022 or say something positive for them and their community instead of sitting there, you fucking baby, whining with your thumb up your ass, right? Instead, you know, act like a man. Do what, do what every other president has done. Become a, a model citizen. Go out and make, make something better in the world instead. Right? This is exactly why you're never going to see a Trump library, a Trump presidential <laughs> library. First of all, what's going to fill the inside of the library? What, his, you know, his notes with his three, four, five bullet points? Uh, a picture of, uh, of him in his suit? I mean, what, what's going to be in there? A bottle of Diet Coke? Let's, let's, be, let's be real. He accomplished nothing. And at the end of the day, you know, the guy is the leader of an insurrection. So, you know, it's, look, is, will there be, you know, misinformation, disinformation? Sure. But I think that a lot of this also falls on the media and their, their need to actually do more in order to stop this misinformation, disinformation, because I was part of this. We would. I was sitting with Trump. I talk about it in my book, Disloyal. I was sitting there, and it was attacking Barack Obama regarding, you know, birtherism. Right. And he said, watch what I'm going to do. And he went ahead. He called a reporter. The reporter then was eager to talk to him. He turned around. And he said, you know, I sent a whole investigative crew to, to um, <laughs> Hawaii in order to, you know, find and to— prove once and for all that Barack Obama was not born in Hawaii. There is no birth certificate. And so on. They said, well, can you provide us with any of that? Info? Not yet, but soon. It's coming. Whenever you hear that, you know, yeah, it's, it's like his health care plan. Because, right. yeah. Correct. Because he never sent anybody. But what do you think the front page of every single newspaper right. was? I spent the next six hours on the phone promoting the same bullshit over and over and over again, and each and every one of them fell for it hook, line, and sinker because they didn't want to be you know, excluded from the news cycle, which was all about Donald Trump sends investigators to Hawaii to check on Obama's birth certificate. Fucking lie from the beginning. He knew it was a lie. I knew it was a lie. And I wouldn't be shocked if most of the media knew it was a lie. But they didn't care because it meant click clickbaits for them. It meant more papers sold. It meant more airtime for them, you know, for that 5, 10, 15 minutes on, the, you know, whether whichever station it was, it didn't make a difference. In an interview with Brian Williams, you said, and I quote, if it's a choice between saving the filibuster and ending democracy, let's just turn out the lights now because that's where we're headed. Can you unpack that statement for my listeners, especially as it relates to Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin? Right. Well, again, it's this. I think we should get rid of the filibuster. Uh, it was established really to protect uh, you know, the South and, and white supremacy aims and slavery. Um, I think we should have majority rule. Uh, and so if you win an election and you've got power, 
you get your chance to enact your agenda and voters will either accept that or they'll get rid of you. Like, and that's how most of the world works. But given the threat to democracy, um, voting rights passed in Washington won't solve all the problems as we talked about around democracy threats, but it's a big piece of it. If if you have to get rid of the filibuster to do that, you need to do that. Now, my guess is where we're going to head is Cinema Mansion won't agree to get rid of the filibuster entirely, but they'll find a carve out. So McConnell, you know, changed this a few years ago, and now you only need 50 votes to confirm Supreme Court justices. I'm sure they'll define this as measures to protect the democracy in our Constitution now only require 50 votes. That'll be challenged in court. But I think that'll give comfort. The thing that frustrates me is the argument that some Democrat senators say is we don't want to get rid of the filibuster because then the Republicans might get rid of the filibuster when they win back power. McConnell's going to get rid of the filibuster if they win back the Senate. I guarantee you he'll say, I didn't want to do this, but I'm going to do this because the Democrats almost did. And next time they come in power, they will. And he won't care. Uh, you know, I faced off against McConnell. This is a ruthless SOB. OK, uh, he 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 will have his list of here's the 25 things I would do if we got rid of the filibuster and he'll do them all. He won't navel gaze. He won't hem and haul. So uh, to protect their democracy, we need at the very least to carve out the ability to pass voting rights legislation. And Joe Manchin came out with, I thought, a, a very thoughtful compromise that most Democrats could get behind. Now, we should get rid of the filibuster so we can do immigration reform and expand health care and, uh, you know, tax changes and all the all the like. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. And I think we're, we're living in a fantasy world if we think that Mitch McConnell, the next time he has power, is not going to get rid of the filibuster entirely. He's going to do that. Uh, so, so I think that's where we're headed, Michael, is there's going to be some carve out for, um, you know, voting rights uh, that Manchin and Cinema say they can get behind uh, that they'll do for 50 votes. But I doubt they're going to get rid of the filibuster entirely. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. However, one thing that Trump did teach the future president as well, uh, our current president and future presidents is all about executive orders. You don't have to do things the old fashioned way. Donald Trump is already shit all over that, and that's already out the door. So you want to do something? You want to pass immigration, meaningful immigration reform? Do it through executive order. Basically, do away with the entire need for the House and the Senate. And on top of that, if by chance the dark overlord McConnell himself with that fucking gorgle of his, if he gets control and power— the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to move to impeach, you know, Biden for something. I mean, the only thing that stopped Donald Trump from, you know, not just obviously he was impeached, but he was not convicted, you know, of it was simply the fact that the Senate was controlled by Republicans and that there was no way in the world that they were going to that they were going to agree whether they held that trial or not, that was the biggest farce on the planet. But my recommendation, and I keep saying this, first and foremost, what I think Biden needs to do, anybody that was affiliated with the former administration, you have to go. I mean, and I talk about this all the time regarding the BOP. Why is Michael Carvajal still there? Why are so many ambassadors or individuals that were under the Trump administration Why in the world are they still there? They're not on your side. They will do everything within which to impede the success of your administration and this country, which to me is illogical. Do it by executive order. You don't need them. Get rid of all of those people. Bring in... Bring in the people that you need and then start start passing legislation by executive order. And if, in fact, that, you know, the 
Mitch McConnell's of the world that they want to challenge it? No problem. Fuck you, Mitch. Challenge it. <laughs> Bring your action in the courts. I'll see you in about 11 years. Yeah, well, I do think— That's listen, the Trump ideology. Yeah, there is. there are some things inconveniently, you know, based on law— that are not eligible for executive order action. But I, I do think you're right. I think I, I'd assume later this fall, once most of the legislative agenda is done for Biden, uh, they'll look at executive actions across all these issues and say, where can they push things? Where can they be more aggressive legally uh, than you might have been previously? And I'm excited by that because I think you've got to pull every lever here uh, when you know progress for the American people is getting blocked. You know that McConnell is an obstructionist when the country is hurting. People don't have food on their table. They have no money for electricity or essentials of life. And they go ahead and they block the um, COVID relief package. I mean, that just has to show you exactly the black heart that this guy has. But I want to ask you this, David. Last week on Twitter, you wrote, and I quote, the more we learn about the horrors in Trump's White House, the more grateful we should be every day for all those who dedicated so much time to ensuring his defeat and electing Joe Biden our president. But there are some who feel that the Biden administration, and especially the Merrick Garland leading of the DOJ, are acting way too timid in regards to Trump and the GOP. What's your position on this? Well, I do think we should be aggressive as possible, not because Trump was a Republican and they're Democrats. I mean, he basically brought the country to the brink. And so I think that needs a full accounting and investigation. So I would like to see more aggression there. I was glad to see Merrick Garland announce they're going to uh, file a lawsuit against Georgia uh, and their voter suppression laws. Um, but I'd say a couple things. One, um, none of this should surprise us. I'm sure it doesn't surprise you. But when you see... When, you know, he wanted to send the initial COVID positive people to Guantanamo Bay, you know, he ordered the military to go crack heads during the George Floyd protests. I mean, maybe it doesn't surprise us, but to see it, you realize how bad it was. And if this guy had won a second term, there's no way he was going to leave the White House. I think they would say we're here forever uh, and, and they would not operate by any rules. So I think I think the Biden administration is getting more aggressive, will continue to be aggressive. But I understand there's a view that says. The election's over. You just need to, um, you know, look past a bunch of stuff. But these are crimes against our country. These are serious crimes. There has to be accountability. Uh, and so I think there should be as aggressive an accounting as possible across every agency that has any ability to to look into these things. Because, you know, even even quaint things, I know it seems quaint, like, you know, he uh, held the Democratic Convention at the White House. That's a felony. That's that's illegal. OK, he used government property. Um, uh, it's just, uh, and by the way, that sounds like, uh, you know, uh, shoplifting a, a candy bar. Okay. Compared to all the things he did, but I'm looking forward to some of these books. They're going to come out by reporters, by insiders, more reporting. We need more congressional investigations. So we have the full understanding. Why is that important? It is understanding for accountability, but to your point, I think there is starting to be a little bit of a turn on Trump, even in his base. And the more this stuff comes out, I think people just be like, I'm not sure we can go back to that. You know? Well, that's what we're hoping. And, you know, and when you said that if Trump was reelected, I've said this more times than I care to even admit. Donald Trump's total interest was never to be president. The election for him was merely supposed to be, and I've said it so many times, this was supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics. But what he wanted 
was to be like Putin. He wanted to become an autocrat or a monarch or a dictator like Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin. These are the people that he looked up to. He wanted to be to America what Putin is to Russia. And that's why he was already at some of these crazy rallies talking about, well, what about Trump 2028? Right. He already skipped over 2024 because that's just a God given. Right. He's already talking about 2028. That's what he really wanted. He wanted to become an autocrat. He was basically methodically shredding our Constitution. How? By going ahead and destroying your First Amendment rights, like what they were doing to me when they remanded me back to prison. They. It's they're setting predicates, they're setting levels to figure out how to continue to raise them over and over and over again. And then what did he do? He set up a paramilitary group, his MAGA warriors, these bunch of assholes running around with AR-15s and Make America Great Again hats and MAGA flags and, you know, Trump 2020 flags draped in them like this shaman and the rest of these lunatics who were not walking in between the stanchions orderly. They were there within which to prevent the election from being certified, which was merely just a procedure. I mean, that's truthfully what was going on, and that's the danger of somebody like Donald Trump. But worse than that, it's the danger of the next Donald Trump that comes along, somebody who's a lot smarter, a lot richer, a lot more devious and sinister. And there are people out there. We have, I don't don't know them, right? Maybe we haven't met them yet, but rest assured, you know, guys like a Josh Hawley or even a DeSantis, they're no better than Donald Trump. A Matt Gates, they're all the same. And they're dangerous. They're dangerous because now they have a playbook. But I know that you saw firsthand how an obstructionist House and Senate can derail a president's legislative vision. Because President Obama began his presidency in a quest for bipartisanship, but ended up going it alone with executive orders to get things done. At what point should a President Biden do the exact same thing? Because right now, as I said before, he's dealing with a GOP that is even more intransigent and obstructionist in that they don't even believe that Biden won the election. And if you were advising him today, what would be your game plan for him? Well, so here's what I think what's clear is there there is this bipartisan infrastructure deal. I think that'll get done. And there may be a possibility for bipartisan policing reform, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. After that, I think you're not going to get anything done with the Republicans. So you have to do uh, two things. Uh, where can you – if well, one, try and get rid of the filibuster. If you can't do that, where can you use reconciliation, which is not available on all issues? But if it's ruled valid because it has enough of a budget impact, you can do a lot with 50 votes. That's how Trump did the tax cuts. That's how Obama did health care. That's how Biden's probably going to do the next phase of his economic agenda. And then you look at executive actions. And again, while I agree with your sentiment, there are some issues where you just can't use an executive action. You have to you know, pass legislation. You can't change tax rates, for instance, through executive action. So I think they'll be aggressive on all those fronts. But but I think all you can hope for is the infrastructure deal and maybe policing form after that. Um, and I think McConnell's going to try and kill both of those. But I think he's got enough members, interestingly enough. So, listen, I, we, we went through this McConnell back in the Obama first term. OK, we came, as you know, Michael, we were a whisper away from a Great Depression. OK, national crisis. McConnell didn't want to lift a finger. He said, my only priority is making Obama one term president and said, if we cooperate him, he look if we cooperate with Obama, he looks postpartisan. He looks moderate. We want to turn him into a crazy liberal. And so that's what he did. 
Uh, this time, he's got some members, in part because I think they have good relationships with Biden. I was seeing some of these Republican senators say, well, we've got to do something with the guy. So they'll do infrastructure and maybe uh, some police reform, which is great. But after that, you got to stop pursuing Republicans and say, what can we do with filibuster reform, reconciliation, and to your point, executive actions uh, and regulation uh, and be as aggressive as possible. Because, you know, there's a chance that after, let's say, September, October of this year, Joe Biden's legislative agenda could be largely done for the rest of his you know, first term. And maybe he gets some things done in 23 with a new Congress. But um, you've got to look at all the other levers you can pull to make progress on these issues. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that I spoke to Trump about in 2015 and 2016 when he got the nomination is in the event that you actually win this thing, because he never believed he was going to win this. No, nobody believed it. Right. It was all about infrastructure. And that's why he went off to Saudi Arabia to Riyadh that time. Lied to the American people, right, early on, saying they just pledged $250 billion to invest in U.S. infrastructure. And then he goes to China and allegedly the same $250 billion. And then Japan, his good friend, right, you know, is now going to invest $250 billion into U.S. infrastructure. And then through the geniusness of Steve Mnuchin, knowing Wall Street and Treasury bills and so on, we're going to get a 10 to 1. So we will have $7.5 trillion to spend in U.S. infrastructure. We're going to fix every road, every bridge, every tunnel. Really? It's funny because my son the other day was driving on the highway and it blew out his tire because there was a um, a piece of rebar sticking out through the concrete and it ended up shredding his tire, right? So what happened to that $7.5 trillion? It was never there. That's the whole thing. Donald Trump yeah. fucking lies like you breathe. He's the greatest bullshit artist on the planet. And it's sad that there's still like 25, 28, 30% of, the, of, these, of this population of the that country, truly yeah. believe... That, right. Yeah, in the country that believe everything that this fucking wackadoodle has to say. And it blows me away. I mean, if this was your kid, you would turn around, you put him in the corner and you would say, you're not coming out of there till you learn how to tell the truth. But that's just where we're on. Now, let me ask you this question. Fox News and the GOP seem to be obsessed with the twin evils of so-called wokeness and the misunderstood criti uh, critical race theory. Now, while many of the left scoff at their obsession with these issues, it seems to be animating the base like no other issue as the GOP looks to find a wedge issue rooted in identity politics that allows them to um, pretend that they aren't racist. How much weight do you think these issues will have in the midterms and in 2024? Or do you think that they are just today's distraction? It's too early to know, Michael. I know that it will play a role in Republican primaries. So, you know, what would a success? So think about like a, 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 a debate for a Republican primary in Congress next year. You know, what's their opening statement going to be? Number one, Donald Trump won the election. Some of them might even say, I still think he's the president. Number two, all of our kids are being taught to hate white people. Number three, coronavirus was a weapon from the Chinese. Number four, the vaccines don't work. Uh, it goes on and on. OK, so that's where we are. Will that really affect the general election? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, it's all based on, you know, a lot of Republicans are getting more comfortable with putting white grievance uh, front and center. 
certainly the entertainment wing of the Republican Party, again, is right. I mean, Fox News is kind of a series of white power hours, as I said earlier, and OAN and Newsmax are even worse. So what's interesting, of course, critical race theory, like I think if you ask the average voter, should should kids learn about lynching? Should kids learn about the civil rights struggles in the 50s and 60s? Should kids learn about slavery? They'd say yes. Uh, and so, you know, the reality, I'm not an expert in critical race theory, but I think it's basically – you know, there's parts of our history uh, that we're not being taught or certainly not emphasized enough. So let's do that and put it in context. Uh, and I think most people around the country would agree with that. But listen, right now, the, the Republican Party, when I said there's there's some notable exceptions to this, but but the, the by the way, who runs the Republican Party? I mean, Trump's a big factor. It is Ingram and it's Carlson and it's Lachlan Murdoch and it's Sinclair, the local broadcast. They, they, they are in charge. And until they change and the, the Mercers and the Mercers. Right. So until they change, the Republican Party's not going to change. And so much of this is, is trying to stoke up white grievance. It's trying to, you know, just make shit up. It's trying to create controversy. It's not about governing. It's not about improving people's lives. So that's where the energy is. Uh, but I think you have to take these things seriously, uh, because if you get to the point where, you know, even some some suburban voters, for instance, who might have abandoned the Republican Party, voted for Biden, might, maybe even voted for Hillary uh, are you know concerned about some of these issues and you don't answer back. What you can't do in today's world is say that's not going to become a problem or that's just bouncing around social media. Well, social media is the public square these days. You know, we used to say, I'm sure you advised your clients through the years, including Trump. That if it's not on the front page of the New York Times, don't worry about it. If it's not going to lead NBC News, don't worry about it. Well, now the energy, it happens the other way. Stuff gets energy on social media. A lot of it, you know, crazy, but it ends up bleeding into the mainstream. And so you got to take this stuff seriously. But I think for the most part, listen, Trump fell victim to this. It's why he got so upset when Fox would say anything critical. They have their little happy place. It's almost like their own little personal Westworld where everything's like the way they like it. And they're the hero of the story. And Republicans no, 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 don't that's not where it is. It's the, no, that, that's not where it is. It's at the tug and rub place. That's like two and a half miles <laughs> okay. down, down okay. the road from Mar-a-Lago. Okay, so that's, that's you know, for him, place. that's a happy place. But I think, what did Stormy <laughs> say? He's got a little Yeti or whatever. But, um, you know, I think that um, uh, it's this distortion field, right? It, it's They live in a world where everybody uh, is convinced that white people are under attack and everybody's convinced, you know, that the vaccines don't work and everybody's convinced that climate change isn't real. I mean, I even back in 12, I don't think, you know, I think the Republican Party was shocked that Romney lost to Obama because on Fox in particular, they were just getting fed every day. Romney's going to win. Romney's going to win. Romney's going to win. Same thing happened with Trump this time. He obviously was the prime stoker, but they followed right along. So so this so many Republican politicians are comfortable living in this coddled fake world Um that, again, is probably where 50 to 60 percent of their primary voters reside. So, well, let's not forget that Dick Morris got that so wrong that that was the end of his entire political career. Right. I mean, that that I thought was uh, an interesting thing. I mean, yeah. he was just so dead wrong. They just completely got rid of him. I guess he's kicking around Newsmax or something. Right. He's still alive. Somewhere yeah. Wherever he's kicking around yeah. somewhere. Right. But I think Stormy, by the way, I think she described his appendage more like shiitake mushroom style. <laughs> uh, I, I, look, I, I did read the book while I was in prison and I did kind of. Um, but when it comes to this whole 
education in regard to slavery and race and some of um, these other areas. There's so many areas that are neglected and they're just not taught. I mean, ask the last kid when he learned about, for example, the Armenian genocide. Ask them about when, you know, you really learned about the Holocaust, um, you know, and not from a 35,000 foot I'm talking about like right there on the ground. I mean, talk about slavery and lynchings and uh, this, you know, what they just showed. I think it was on uh, CNN with that Tulsa, um, you know, and. and, and Yeah, did you learn about Tulsa? I didn't learn about Tulsa when I was growing up. I did not learn about it. I actually read it in a book, um, but it wasn't that long ago. Right. Um, Right. I did not learn it at all in school. And you know what? As I watched it, my heart bled for these people. This is their community. So what that they were doing well? God bless less. Isn't that the American dream? Sure it is. Just not if you were black at the time. And yes, it should be acknowledged and it should be discussed because you can't, you can never learn the future if you don't understand the past. And that's the, that's the ignorance that Donald Trump brought. But you know, as we're beginning to wind down, I have like just two more questions for you. And I want to switch gears for a moment and discuss a passage in your book. And I quote, audacity to win where you describe President Biden as follically challenged and that it was something that the president was well aware of. Now, you go on to describe when Biden debated Sarah Palin in 2008, and it says, Plof recalled the vice presidential nominee grabbing political consultant Frank Greer, who had a nice head of hair, to thank him. (laughs) Man, Frank, if only I had your hair, I could have been the number one guy on this ticket. Now, discuss with me how important a good head of hair is to a candidate's (laughs) political fortunes, and who in politics has the most evolved quaff? Well, listen, Biden ended up winning president uh, as a follicle. Listen, I grew up in Delaware, so I knew Biden uh, well, the legend of Biden got to know him, and uh, that was always the thing. He was in search of, like, you know, the right hair plugs. But, um, you know, but that that anecdote, I mean, Biden is just a remarkable retail politician. He just likes people, right? He he just likes people, and he compliments them, and, and he says nice things. Um, yeah, well, the best hair, I mean, Romney's got pretty good hair, but uh, didn't quite get it done uh, back in, in, in 12. Uh, let's see, who's got really good hair that's potential prep? I mean, Pete Buttigieg has a good set of, good got, head of hair. Yeah, good, good, good set of hair. You know, I guess Jeb Bush had Jeb decent Bush has hair. A good, Jeb Bush yeah. has decent hair, yeah. So, yep. you know, but Trump had bad hair. Biden, you know, follically challenged. Obama thin. So, you know, the last one, Bush had pretty good hair. Clinton had pretty good hair. Kennedy had good hair. Reagan. So maybe things have changed, right? Maybe you don't need great hair anymore. Uh, to win the presidency. <laughs> Apparently you don't. But, you know, our history is people with pretty darn good hair, right? LBJ, not so much. Yeah, maybe. maybe well, maybe I got to <laughs> shut that. I'm kind of it's not really working that great. Now, as we finish up and we wind down the hour, I just want to ask you this question, because, you know, I hear these rumblings in like progressive quarters regarding, you know, your presence. You know, a lot of people, they have issues with if you were the campaign manager of Barack Obama, you were the campaign manager of Joe Biden, even Donald Trump that you should be excluded from, for example, being on public boards, right? Um, and then, of course, you know, there's a public board that I think that you're affiliated with, which is Oscar Health, and that is owned by the Kushners, specifically Josh Kushner, I think, is the CEO of the company. How would you respond to those critics? Because, and I'm talking now from a selfish standpoint, it's, I, I can't even get a bank account. Forget about a job sitting on a board or something. I mean, because of my previous position, it really makes 
makes me almost persona non grata in so many different respects. I, I actually, I admire it. Uh, I, I'm a little uh, shocked, you know, about Oscar, considering it's so heavily Kushner-related. But how would you respond well, to these critics? Well, it's, it's Josh, number one, uh, not, uh, not the other one with a J. And uh, uh, CEO is actually Mario Schlosser, who's, uh, who's just a great guy. And I believe, um, I believe any company that can help people fully realize the promise of the Affordable Care Act, which is people buying individually in the market, is a worthwhile thing. There's no question in, in the Democratic Party today, particularly with younger Democrats, they feel strongly. Um, they're, they're very um, sort of anti-capitalist, and, and you know many of them say they never work in a company. I've worked in companies. I consult with companies. I learn a lot. For me, I've worked in government. I've worked in politics. I've worked in the philanthropic sector. I've worked in the private sector. And I feel all those experiences make me a better advisor, a better counselor, understand the country and the world better. But I think that there are folks who who do believe that, you know, business is, is not a place where you should, you know, spend time. Uh, I don't agree with that. Maybe that's a generational thing. But for me, I've always been, I think, definitely enhanced by a variety of experiences. I've also find a lot of the criticisms, you know, a lot of people in business say government doesn't know what they're doing. Sometimes right, mostly wrong. Uh, you know, people in government will say business, you know, they're all just out for themselves. Of course, they're there to make a profit, but, you know, they also employ a lot of people and, and do good work. I, I think, you know, we're, Michael, we're, we are in a world today where uh, gray is, is increasingly not accepted by people, right? It's just black or white, you know, you know whether that's in politics or views of, of, of other issues. But, you know, for me, I enjoy learning about the world through these different vantage points, government, politics, the private sector, the philanthropic sector. And A, selfishly for me, I think I learn a lot. I think I'm probably a better professional for that reason. But I think you really, you know, for issues like healthcare, issues like climate, issues like, uh, you know, the economy and wage growth, seeing them from a lot of different vantage points, I think you understand a problem better. I'm always interested. I, I can't tell you them, and I won't mention them, but, but many CEOs I've talked to through the years, some of them thought about running for president, others just think they could do the job, say, I just don't understand. You know, I have a board, so if I was president, I'd treat the board, Congress, like I treat my board, and they'd do whatever I want. I'm like, what the fuck are you saying? Okay, so, so Congress, A, is not a board. So n- number two, you've got, so in this case, the other party on the board is out there to decapitate you every day. And the people who are even in your own party are trying to shiv you every day. Like, give me a break, man. This is like hero complex, right? It doesn't work that way. It's not on the level. So anyway. Yeah, I'm not personally, like I said, you know, I have no issue with it. You know, when I hear people saying the rumblings, they they don't just take it to the point about David Plouffe being on the board. It's also, well, you were the campaign manager or you were somehow affiliated to who, what, when, when, why. You shouldn't even be allowed to write a book. That's not right. And Trump actually went so far as to anybody that was within his administration, you had to sign a pledge not to become a consultant or a lobbyist for three years post um, you know, the end of his presidency. I mean, th- I think it's going very, very far. I- Listen, it's funny. Like the, <laughs> My first book, Audacity to Win, was written after the OIT election. And of course, I asked Obama whether what he thought. He said, well, yeah, you, you should write that because there's going to be all these other accounts that come out until I can write my book, which if all goes well, won't be for 10 or 12 years. So yours will be true. Like mine will be a lot better than yours because <laughs> uh, I'm a better writer than you. Uh, he would say with a laugh on his face, but you should go do that. So I obviously wouldn't do anything uh, during those years that that he wasn't not just fine with, but but excited about. But listen, I also think that, you know, 
life goes on. Like, I don't want to live my life based on political victories I had, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Like, I'm not interested in that. For me, I want to move on. I want to learn new things. I want to work with new people. And and that's what keeps me alive. That's what keeps me motivated and interested. So I do think um, sometimes in politics, there can be folks who basically, you know, that that was their high point. Um, and of course, that was my high point. I'll never do anything as important as helping get Barack Obama elected. But I don't want to just like live in that. I don't want to like stew in that. Like you got to move on. Yeah. Well, David, I thank you so much for your time, your insight. Uh, yes, you did accomplish a lot, and I'm sure you have a lot more to accomplish. So I want to thank you for your time today on Maya Culpa and hope to speak to you and see you again soon. All right, Michael, hang in there. Thank you, my friend. And now for today's Maya Culpa. In talking to David Plouffe today, I am struck by the difference between this smart political animal and the morons, racists, and goons who Trump surrounded himself with based solely on his gut instinct and spotting winners. The boogeymen who populated his campaign team were taken largely from the fringe of the GOP, but they never really had that much sway. Trump trusts no one more than he trusts himself. Remember, this is a man who knows more than the generals when it comes to the armed forces and more than the scientists when it comes to COVID-19. As long as I knew him, he acted as his own PR agency and created his own political strategy. In Trump world, that means flushing a series of lies and falsehoods into the news cycle and repeating them so often until they take on a veneer of truth. Beyond that, there was no strategy, save for bullying his opponents and demonizing immigrants, minorities, and whoever else makes for a convenient target. Trump punches down. That's his move. He'll look for the weakest person in the room and humiliate them for sport, even if it's his own son. Cruelty to him is part of the game. Do it to them before they do it to you. Seeing Trump on a stage in Ohio... I am reminded of those early days on the campaign trail. Except for one major difference, no matter how hard he tries, Trump cannot erase the frightening memory of January 6th from our minds. And that's the point. He wants us to remember. He wants us to be afraid. The GOP may want to move on from the 2020 election, but in Trump's mind, that's the only thing that matters. He was cheated, which means his supporters were cheated. What was stolen from them is much more than just an election. It's their dignity, their manhood, their whiteness. In Trump's telling, he lost and was replaced by agents of Marxism, agents of wokeness. Surrounding all of this is the menace of conspiracy and QAnon. And lurking just in the distance is the promise of more violence, more bloodshed. Trump's reemergence on the political scene is promising to spark a seismic disruption to America's political system bigger than the one he caused when he came down his gilded escalator six years ago. When we wake up from this nightmare, hell, it's anyone's guess. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, 
We all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. (laughs) 